Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is James Smith, the thinker. James is back on the podcast once again, and this time James is talking about how to develop optimal mental preparation for any conceivable situation that may arise in sport or in life itself. Guys, this was a really fascinating discussion with James, as all discussions are when James is on the podcast, and I hope you guys really, really enjoy it. Okay, Jane Smith, it is an absolute pleasure, as always, my friend, to have you on this podcast, and no doubt we'll get into some really good topics here. I know beforehand we were kind of just discussing about what we'll talk about, and I was saying we can never go wrong with some, some discussion on critical thinking, and uh, what I've been kind of meditating on an awful lot lately is fatigue and understanding accumulated fatigue, um, or trying to understand it, because uh, when I was at Altus, it was one thing me and Ben Fath spoke about at length, and Obviously, with everything, there's always going to be, you know, inter-individuality. That's always going to be a part of everything. Everyone's going to respond differently to every sort of stimulus. But it's a, it's an area that I'm very uh, interested in. I'd be very interested to get your thoughts on. But maybe just give us a catch-up again. I, I know you had some consulting with some NFL football players. You did a bit of traveling there lately. And uh, Maybe fill us in on what's been new since we last spoke. Once again, thank you for having me on, Robbie. We always have an enjoyable discussion, so I'm sure this one will not disappoint. The most recent work of mine has been purely in the psychological realm. So as I make clear in the governing dynamics of coaching, I have my definition of what the parent constituents are that define competence in coaching with no other adjective preceding coaching, simply coaching in the sport context. And additionally, how we may look at a colloquial synonym for what that role consists of military, as those are two domains in which I've had very close relationships with. So psychological being one of the main governing dynamics in my observation and experience being very poorly addressed in sport and military despite the presence of trained psychologists Mm. and this is because the the realm in which i focus on which i write about in the book is a is it's a realm uncommonly addressed insofar as my experience has revealed because whether it's the military operators or the athletes and even coaches who I've consulted for, without exception, the feedback from every client has been that what I've shared with them, they've never heard before. And and these are people who have access to, as part of their staffs of support personnel, psychologists. Mm-hmm. So Larry Fitzgerald, who is a both a, a client of mine and a close friend as a result of us working together for four years now. He flew me out to Phoenix to consult psychologically with two other starting personnel on the offense. I'm not going to name their names. Yeah, yeah. And the, the nature of the meeting was entirely dialogue-based and entirely 
and contextually that dialogue was specific to reformatting the the psychological framework as it reflects in the in the broad sense worldview and in the acute sense the interpretation of the of the world and the conditions that present themselves as a result of life events around us that every human every every living thing is exposed to and the the central thesis here as i write about in the book is that there is far too much credence given in dialogue on commercials on documentaries on written literary newspaper magazine book form there's far too much credence given to the words in the psychological context stress anxiety fear concern trauma all of which without exception are controllable resultant of the psychological state of the individual and the means by which they choose to process the world and all the conditions that it presents to them and so with i know that we're going to cover a handful of things here so what i'll what i'll conclude with because this is and for me proprietary and it is part of my my profession is consult conducting these consults what's central for everyone to understand and completely objectively consistent with what is known in terms of more than enough research to substantiate this argument of mine no it is not compulsory for any human being who's not already suffering from some clinical pathological condition it is not compulsory for any of these otherwise healthy minds clinically speaking to ever experience fear anxiety stress mm. trauma concern all of which are essentially emergent properties of fear it is not compulsory for anyone of healthy mind clinically speaking no, no one compulsorily must ever experience these emergent processes of, of emotion and consequences mm -hmm. and the road to attaining this is via a psychological preparatory construct that I've come up with and, and I would not in any way claim that it is novel or entirely different than what anyone else is capable of doing with the requisite knowledge simply I've come up with a particular scheme and and what it is rendered is the ability for actionable results to be taken put into practice experientially verified by those who I work with overnight overnight so unlike what I know that we'll get into the concept of the training residuals and so on there's many different physical processes where we're looking at numbers of days weeks months mm. for a requisite ad adaptation to occur at any meaningful objective level in terms of a quantified improvement whereas psychologically comparatively very significant changes can be made in terms of how we might look at factors or orders of magnitude of how thinking is changed and therefore any number of resultant emergent qualities one of which is a a mitigated 
physiological stress response, therefore introducing less physiological, quite literally, wear and tear on the body, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is improvement in whatever the skill domain. So whether that's an athletic skill domain or a military or a business or you name, fill in the blank, any domain, any individual's trade track craft skill is thereby able to be manifest at a far greater level of efficiency because it is no longer hindered by one of these emergent fear-based qualities such as anxiety or stress or concern or worry or mm -hmm. fill in the blank because they're simply not present. So the last Quite literally, I, I returned home the other night, and that was from conducting purely psychological consulting with two of the players, who which I will be continuing to work with on more of a long-term basis. I'm telling you, the, this concept of serendipity just keeps fucking coming up in my life, and, and, and just like, it's just these like, uh, coincidence, because only literally yesterday... We're reading that book *Sapiens*, which is very good, and there's a bit in the book where he talks about uh, um, Gurtamaya, the Buddha, and the idea of this uh, concept of kind of realizing that fear is purely just—it's—it's it's a fiction. It's made. It's only made in our minds. It's not. We we see. I say we when we talk about this. Uh, right. Humans uh, seem to invent something internally but yet they see it as an external source so like whenever when when most would talk about fear they would talk about it in a way that it's something they can't control as if it's an external stimulus to them, when really it's a fictitious uh, concept they've actually just created in their own mind and then so like with the buddha or any sort of that zen buddhism thing they're like they're like their whole thing is that it's all internal it's all your own perception um and so the idea of fear like that's been something i've been thinking about so much lately fear uncertainty death i know we touched a bit on that in our last podcast and it's, it's just because i was talking about that again today with a mentor of mine i met him today um we sat down had a chat and that concept came up again but just this idea of fear and and i think as well what you speak about there in terms of psychology and, and mental preparedness is that a lot of individuals, and I'd be one, they don't see mental preparation the way we see physical preparation um, in terms of the importance of it. Because you just touched on there that if you can reduce the the, the fears, anxiety, etc., etc., uh, in performance, or just in general, your performance is going to raise because what was previously a 100% stressor is now like, 90 or 70 or 60 or 50 it's very very like the alac reserve if we want to compare it uh, um like make an analogy of it to like a physical uh capacity and that we know that if we if we can raise that speed reserve that alactic reserve well then our like raise our maximal outputs as you you would call it our submaximal or operational outputs are less stressful to the system so people from a physical standpoint can understand that but then we get into more mental um like you know mental uh capacities we don't seem to have the same appreciation for it. but this concept of fear definitely is, is something i've been thinking about lately and the idea that again it kind of goes back to like victor frankl in that, that what really separates humans from every other sort of mammal is this ability to choose our response to our stimulus so it's it's interesting that you, you, that's an area you've been researching like is there any particular 
individuals or resources that you've been looking at that have helped to formulate your thoughts on that or so i i have i i what i, I do not have committed to memory research citations mm. it's just not something i've committed to memory what what i would so the way that i'll answer that is my particular approach to problem solving is very much first principles based, which I derive from my enthusiasm for physics. Yeah. And so the, the, the perception, if you will, from which I approach problem solving, no matter the domain, is first principles. Yes. It, it's understanding the mechanisms of how does this work. And so what I've found is on this talk topic of psychological preparation, for anyone listening, what's very important is nothing that I'm proposing in any way falls under pseudoscientific claim. Mm -hmm. None of it. And none of it is conjecture either. This, the, that which substantiates my argument for the insufficiencies of the integration of effective psychological preparation is, is well substantiated in the, in the research in fact, one of my friends and colleagues just sent me a link last night to a, a NCBI research that was published along these very lines that we're talking. I, just, I, don't, I don't recall the, the specifics. Okay. Point is, there's, there's plenty of research, and as we all know, there's been so much research conducted in a variety of disciplines that almost anyone can find some research, if not cherry pick part of an existing research that can support almost any claim, even if they're diametrically diametrically opposed to another claim that's derived from the same research paper. So, however, this is not pseudoscience. And from my first principles perspective of problem solving, the, the answer to your question that I would say is most specific in terms of how I could answer is that assuming problem solving from the perspective of what physics has stimulated in terms of my thinking is how I've arrived at what what begins, Robbie, with the line of questioning. Mm. And hence hence my many criticisms of sport and other hierarchical entities of multifactorial influence in terms of the outcome is, speaking of sport as the context here, so much room to evolve to simply catch up to other existing professions. To simply break even, if you will. Yes. And what what brought me to that point to to be in a position to criticize and ask the relevant questions that were, by way of evidence, not being asked, goes back to the very dawn of my career in sports, and has simply continued. And once again, the re all good, you know, no matter what notable researcher anyone could quote who uh, who is who is always expressing the significance of the questions one asks mm -hmm. and how this in initiates the process of learning the more we identify dogma and tradition and received wisdom as being intrinsic to any cultural entity the more we can be sure that an open-ended line of questioning is not taking place, hence the lack of progress being made. Yeah, exactly. So all of this begins with that line of questioning. So for me, 
it was a matter of looking in hindsight things that I did to psychologically prepare myself prior to SEAL selection course, which I unsuccessfully negotiated twice, but not for psychological reasons. And I looked back and I thought to myself, I did not have the academic knowledge to describe what I was doing at the time. In retrospect, however, what I was doing is an example of what I provide as a service now to others. And I described this in a recent presentation that I gave on my website on psychological preparation in which I reference some of the work of clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson as an example because he's made reference to this mm. that one of the one of sort of the central thesis regarding my arguments of the insufficient knowledge surrounding psychology particularly in the context of preparation ahead of time not Although we can talk about this also, what I'm not talking about specifically here is therapeutic realms of healing from something that's already happened. Of course, that of course that is a necessary discussion. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about here is how, the steps one take one can take to prepare their mind, such that the concept of trauma, for example, cannot happen, because to use that example, a traumatic event. It is only categorically defined by way of a set of conditions that served as a stimulus to a person who is not prepared for them. So I like to use gross examples to prove my point. Whether someone is a parent or not, it's I, I believe it to be fairly uncontroversial for me to state that an adult, regardless of whether they have children or not, if they're to be walking across a parking lot and see an infant run away from a parent and get run over by a car in, in such a way that they capture the entirety of what the actual physical eventuality is of a small infant getting run over by a large automobile and what that would do to that small infant's body in the, the resulting carnage, every detail of that. I think it's uncontroversial to say that if most people were to bear witness to such an event, it would render a psychological trauma. Mm -hmm. It would classify as a traumatic, a psychologically traumatic event from which most people would be well served to resolve therapeutically in order to effectively process and heal from what they saw. My conjecture, which is steeped in what is accepted knowledge, which is why I say this is not pseudoscience, but it is ineffectively integrated into the practice of anyone who has influence over anyone else. So who I'm criticizing here is any parent, any guardian, any teacher, any friend, any coach, any military leader, any boss, anyone in a supervisory role to influence someone else who does not have this knowledge is, in, in my judgment criminally negligent because there's no reason for anyone who I'll, I'll keep going back to is clinically of healthy mind mm -hmm. and that they're not suffering from some significant pathology. There's no reason for any individual to ever 
deal with any kind of psychological trauma, stress, or what have you, of any kind, even using my gross example, bearing eyewitness to an infant getting smashed by an automobile. Now, one the, the way that I substantiate this claim is that, and, and this is to take a portion of some things that I heard Jordan, Jordan Peterson discuss in an interview, because I'm not speaking for him, but he said something that I found very practically applicable to my own arguments, which is to say, if, if the set of all possibilities, and I, I speak about this in the presentation that I gave on my website, if the set of all possibilities in life is assimilated, now what do I mean by assimilated? Understood on a very deep level, and practically applied effectively in the world. Assimilation. If the set of all possibilities is assimilated, absolutely. Now, what do I mean by all possibilities? I mean anything not constrained by the laws of physics that could possibly happen. So whether that be physical trauma to a human or psychological trauma, again, these things can only be trauma if you're not prepared for it, any realm, fill in the blank of the set of what's possible, any catastrophe, any argument, any amount of betrayal, anything, anything possible. If you take the time to assimilate this full set, which for sure takes time and commitment and, let's face it, imagination in order to to fully assimilate absolutely anything possible, then not only do we commit to create a performance reserve, which I write about in the governing dynamics, which you alluded to earlier, in a way it's a universal concept mm. of creating a reserve. Mm. It's simply the differential between some maximum capacity and what you're actually operationally faced with. And you can contextualize that however you want. Here I'm talking about it psychologically. So if I've prepared myself psychologically such that the differential between what my psyche has fully assimilated and, and ultimately has the capacity to effectively endure, then the reserve that I've created, because the likelihood of me in a lifetime ever encountering the full set of possibilities is infinitesimal. Mm. And again, I define full set of possibilities by anything that's not constrained by the laws of physics. Mm. So, so that realm of what's possible, if you take the time to fully assimilate yourself to it, clearly it's uncontroversial to state that in the realm of what's actually possible, yet highly unplausible to ever happen, yet to devote real time and cognitive work to assimilating how one might most effectively negotiate this circumstance if it happened. By doing so, you psychologically prepare yourself for extremes that are highly implausible to ever happen such that what actually does happen, regardless of the relativistic concept of, a, of an extreme, simply due to a provincial restriction regarding a very, a very myopic sense of 
what one might otherwise need to prepare themselves for for a particular job. If you adopt my line of thinking and we psychologically prepare ourselves to anything that is possible, the reserve becomes colossal. The reserve that distinguishes the difference between what any of us have assimilated and thus rendered ourselves as prepared as we can be short of actually going through it. The difference between that and what we will actually encounter, that's the reserve. And the greater that differential is, the more innocuous something becomes, relatively speaking. So that baby getting trampled by an automobile might, I'll just conjecture, let's say 98% of the population on Earth would experience trauma from having seen that. However, that 2%, again, I'm pulling numbers out of a hat here, that 2% that, say, thinks the way that I do and has devoted real cognitive work to assimilating this mode of preparation, Mm. all that they see is the physical ramification of what one body of mass will always do to a lesser body of mass, of less mechanical, structural, resiliency, etc. It simply, <clears throat> excuse me, it simply is nothing other than a physical eventuality of what happens. Now you can take that steps further and choose to empathize. You can choose to imagine how painful that must be for that infant's parents and loved ones and everything. You can choose that. But now the question becomes, does that serve you? Is that of what your greatest use can be? And now we get into a whole line of discourse, which falls into the, the type of consulting that I provide. And uh, what, what hopefully should have been made clear to anyone listening to this is what is attainable via Effectively psychologically preparing oneself relative to the absolute set of possibilities that is unconstrained, that that is achievable in terms of what the laws of physics tell us regarding physical transformations. Mm. If you fully choose this mode of thinking, then what conventional society has falsely embraced, which is to say, falsely embraced the notion that, you know, do you... Do you suffer from stress? Do you work in a stressful environment? Is your significant other giving you stress? Does your boss cause you a lot of stress? And then follow that with any number of suggested approaches on how to manage stress. I approach this. That's part of it. But much more importantly is preemptively. Therefore, my question would be, who is interested in never experienced psychological stress? Who's interested in never experienced trauma? Who's interested in never experiencing anxiety? Raise your hand if you're interested. Of course, the whole planet's going to raise their hand. Because fear, stress, and anxiety serve no utility function beyond what's already happened, evolutionarily speaking. And so when we talk about what an individual is capable of in any given situation, decision-making, thinking clearly, focusing, making the most objective analysis of the situation, anything. They are most well-benefited by knowledge. And so therefore, I believe there's no controversy in stating that I'll speak for the whole of humanity 
in stating that no one really wants to live a life filled with stress, anxiety, fear, concern, worry, all of that. No one wants that. And everyone recognizes that in any given search situation, there is a superior experience to be had than one of those self-deprecating, which is what they are, they're self-deprecating alternatives. So this is fascinating, and I knew this was going to happen. Beforehand, just for the listeners, James was like, what topics do you want to cover? And I was kind of like, eh, we, know, we can talk about fatigue and, and maybe some critical thinking. And I was like, no doubt something's going to come up, and it will just like, It'll be the main tenet of the of the episode, which is definitely this uh, mental preparation, which I'm finding fascinating. So I have one or two little questions, which no doubt you're going to get into here. So uh, I'll leave the first one actually maybe towards toward as the last one. Because the one I want to ask just there is now, in terms of just stating that you know no one again, if you did ask a room of people like who does not want to experience fear or anxiety ever again most people would be like yeah like I, I would like that but just in terms of the universe and just from my own sort of study of some of philosophy through some great philosophers say like Anna Watts for instance like it, would you not see that it's nearly it's nearly a slightly fruitless endeavor to try and get rid of quote-unquote fear and anxiety because without those how would you know what love and pleasurable states are because again the universe works in contrast so to have no fear well then how we know what a, a state of bliss would be uh like you know it'd be like having up without down or day without night or left without right so like can can we really get fully away from things like fear and anxiety and do we even want to because again how would we know pleasure pleasurable states and states of joy and love if we didn't have things like f- fear and anxiety to contrast them against so it's a very fair question and one, one that I've been asked before, as I indicated, from an evolutionary standpoint, there is absolute validity and certainty behind the statement of how valuable the role emotions play, mm. evolutionarily speaking. Absolutely, I do not argue any of this. What fails to be recognized in my estimation is the appreciation that it's happened. So what, what, what I'm, it already happened. So what, what I'm stating is as emotional beings, I mean, this is, this essentially lies at the bedrock of the percentage of the population that is concerned about the future of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. The concern is that if we, develop some silicone-based entity that is capable of abstract reasoning and they lack human emotion, one a you know one concern is this purely objective entity that's all-knowing and incredibly powerful might approach a a medical moral problem such as when asked the question how to cure all the cancer in the world. What the fear-based thinking is, is that, well, it's possible that this super intelligent, all-knowing, all-capable artificial intelligence could interpret that practically and, and deduce 
all, all humans that have cancer represent cancer in the world. So if I simply eliminate all humans, there'll be no cancer in humans in the world. And so that's an example of a, a, a fear-based proposition of one of the many possible downsides of advanced abstract thinking, reasoning, artificial intelligence of what they might be capable of. And it has to do with the presence of human reason or not. And then, of course, the counter argument to that is humans are already humans with our emotions and abstract reasoning. We're already and since the beginning of time. We're already destroying each other. So the very thing you're concerned about the AI doing, we already do that with our human emotions. So that's the counter argument that what's to say that the ability to impart a human set of emotions would be any improvement or not coupled with all the ad advanced computational abilities of some artificial intelligence. That's a counter argument that we're already doing terrible things to each other. And we have been doing terrible things to each other since the beginning of recorded history. Mm. Now, to answer your question more specifically, what I am proposing is not that human humans adapt to a state in which we no longer possess emotions. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. My whole argument and, and approach to psychological preparation has to do with both the management Yes. And and the restructure of thinking. Yes. It's a conversation I've always had in my personal life mm. in that someone might hear me speak and think this guy's a robot. He's talking about seeing a baby get run over by a car and looking at it as nothing other than the physical eventualities of what one massive body does to a smaller massive body. What kind of monster is this talking? And that uh, that could be understandable as I have not talked about myself personally. But the point is I'm an emotional being. It's that. I have what I would subjectively characterize as a highly efficient mode of managing them. And as everyone exists on a spectrum. Yes. And on the one end of the spectrum, you have a sociopath. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, Mother Teresa or who would fill in the blank of someone who just empathizes with the whole of humanity and does everything they can to improve it. It's a continuum. So, we all fall on that continuum through a host of genetic, epi, epigenetic, learned, uh, an amalgamate, mm -hmm. multifactorial process of how we arrive at our psyche. We're all on that continuum somewhere. And so it is very true that I believe that I'm probably an example of someone who genetically is predisposed to be closer to the sociopath end, even though I'm not a sociopath. And well, a lot of the let's do that. I don't yeah. Yeah. So it's a continuum that everyone falls on. And on the topic of self-awareness, it's important to have that recognition of mm. what is my what is my genetic psyche? What what aspects of my psyche might I be well served to adjust or overcome? Yes. And so as it re regards this premise of both management and preemptive psychological preparation, none of it is intended to rob anyone of their emotional experience in life. Mm -hmm. It's attempted to evoke real concentration and dialogue to understanding how so much of this is simply up to our choosing. Yes, yes, yes. And to become a more skillful operator based upon acquiring these tradecraft skills. Mm -hmm. So that 
that's how I would answer your question. Yeah, no, you, you, no. Um, you, you answered. Yeah, I, I had even more questions initially as you were going earlier on. Then you actually answered the answer the question. So, like for instance, uh, that like you answered that question perfectly again. That it's not, it's not like, and it's not like we want to eliminate or say that these emotions will never exist or they don't exist. It's that we have the ability to manage these, so they're not as they're not as much as a negative input on the on the system. And the fact then that we would have this sort of pre-training of our mental capacities in place, they're going to be a, a much more sub-maximal low to our, our psychological well-being than otherwise would have been without this sort of pre-training. So, um, That's right. The other aspect that you answered was you were like saying to, to be mentally prepared for any eventuality. And I was going to ask like every eventuality and you were like within the laws of physics. So you kind of answered that as well then. But I suppose we know then that physics still has a lot of questions obviously you know when i cycle about relativity that was a whole just completely different area so we know that even with that there can be certain things theoretically that we can't prepare for because it's not even as it's kind of like our last conversation we talked about known like uh known knowledge versus new knowledge or what was it, it was like uh you know relative and absolute yeah yeah versus versus brand new knowledge or you know so yes n- knowledge that's already that's already in creation versus knowledge that's that hasn't been tangibly brought into creation or like new knowledge that, that no one knows and again we use science relativity as an as an example of that so obviously there is there is a, a possibility of not being able to prepare for something but within the realms of current physical reality uh, I, I get what you say so well it's, let me let me jump in yeah, there go too. Ahead. It's basically for no other reason. I don't. I don't draw a poignant line of demarcation saying if if it's if 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 it's not constrained by a law of physics, then uh, it's no point talking about it. That that's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It's that it just makes it it makes it a bit more logistically efficient regarding the scope of actual practice. Yes. Because for example. If I said, okay, now let's open it up to the realm of only the imagination, and now the laws of physics have no bearing, then not only has that, that that's now created an infinite set yeah. of possibilities, an infinite. And so what I simply do for the sake of efficiency is say, okay, because even by constraining it with the laws of physics, it's still gigantic yeah, in terms yeah. of what's possible. You said you said the magic word there, efficiency. I was just gonna say it's not it's not an efficient use here. Time like to that yeah, it's because I could say okay, now let's for example let's imagine an elephant moving at the speed of light with pink hair and the face of your grandmother, and you know I I could I could go down that lane, but now I've gotten so far off course what? because. What? In a human lifetime, that's just not going to happen. What, why, now, did, why did Donald Trump just come into my mind there? You're just like an elephant, <laughs> and then this pink is just like, he came to my mind. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, don't get me wrong, as a creative exercise, uh, I have done that very thing. Mm. It's, but it's, that, it's up to me to choose my own time, how I want to use it, and if I want to have some fantastical imagination or thought experiments about something that could have happened if the laws of physics were mutable, then I certainly would not discourage anyone else from doing the same because there, there is a utility to this. It's that from an efficiency standpoint, when I'm conducting my 30-minute consults, I'm not going to choose to waste someone's time with conjuring up something that is 
not constrained by the laws of physics, yeah. just to, just to test the limits of their imagination, even though that absolutely could serve a utility function. Yes, so yeah. it's it, this is all governed by the parameter of efficiency, and therefore I sort of arbitrarily said, okay, let's just say what what we will prepare ourselves for is anything that's actually plausible. Yes. No matter highly unlikely, yet it is plausible. Mm. It is plausible that your that you know your mother could say, "Hey, Robbie, look, it ripped the intestines out of your father." It's highly unlikely, highly unlikely, but very plausible. There, there is we're not even coming close to to violating some law of physics in terms of that being possible. Yeah. So that's not out of the realm. That's not out of the realm. Yeah. He's saying, Robbie, this would be a good exercise. I want you to exercise your imagination on something relatively unthinkable, but there's nothing constraining it from happening in terms of the laws of physics. That That's when we can get into examples that are still ex- extraordinarily extreme, yet efficacious to contemplate because it's actually possible. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, if you fully assimilated the psychological state on how to most efficiently handle such a situation, you can imagine the reserve that you create. Mm. And then all of a sudden, what actually does happen at work, in life, with a significant other, becomes by comparison so innocuous, so manageable, that the knowledge that you have derived from these thought experiments renders you that much more of a capable operator Meanwhile, everybody else might be experiencing stress, fear, and anxiety due to what now, to the psychologically prepared mind, is simply mundane. Yeah. And it's innocuous compared to what you are ready for. And therefore, you are a more skillful operator. All of these life conditions have an extraordinarily less implication on you in terms of psychological, physiological ramifications. And you become that much more of a utility to those around you in whom you can facilitate in making the same advancements. So two other thoughts come off that. So you mentioned a few times about outside of having some known psychological or mental health issue, be that what it may, um, or probably even like a structural physiological thing where you've got like a tumor in your brain or something like that. But, right. How would you define a healthy mind then? Like you know, so what 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 would that be? So you keep saying you kept going like there's no need for a healthy mind to experience these emotions. So like how, how would you define a healthy mind? So you just said it. So that there's no pre-existing condition, structural such as you mentioned, a, a physical entity, a tumor, or otherwise biochemical imbalance. Some of the neural wiring is a result of biological maturation that has created some anomaly, quite literally, in the physical structure of the brain, irrespective of, say, a, a cancerous tumor or, or even an or even a, a, a innocuous tumor, just any any tissue mass or otherwise malformation physically, any any number of either physical, biochemical, and emotional, due to the you know a, an infant. Not only human infants, many mammals. It's it's well. There are there is more than one species in the animal kingdom. Humans being one. If nurture is absent in the early stages of growth, death is a real possibility. Mm-hmm. At the extreme, 
and then upwards on there in the continuum is, you know, the development of psych psychopathy and all the rest. So any realm of, of discussion that, re that regards whether it be structural, psycho psychological, biochemical, a, a, a condition off of the baseline of what I would revert to as clinical has been described as a norm. So someone who would check out, given whatever the arbitrary guidelines are that a clinician would, would deem relevant is, okay, this person is of sound mind and body. We're not discussing what opinions they have in politics or otherwise, but yeah. this person is of sound mind and body via the modes of analysis that are used to classify mental health. That is what I would say is efficient to rely upon. All of this, all of this has the room for evolution. Absolutely. But again, again, I'll come back to efficiency. Let's look at what medical science, what lines of demarcation do they use to, to distinguish of sound mind and body of reasonable thinking, competent thinking, self-aware, a qualified to defend yourself in a criminal trial. Mm. We, we have, we have these modes of, of categorization in place and whether or not they can be improved is certainly not what I would address here. Mm. Yet they exist yes. and we, we, we already have modes that, that seem to be working more well than they do not in terms of categorizing what one's psychological state is. And so that's what I would divert to okay. in terms of action. That's, that question. The, that's a perfect answer. You, and you touched on a number of little things there, you know, the available modes you'd say, which, which is, which is a lot. And then you said there's room to scope for evolution within those modes. So, I mean, you're always very good at addressing like any potential follow-up questions. So, um, yes. now I, I don't know how much you can get into this because I know it's, it's part of your, your consultant and, and you know, maybe it's, I'm asking you for a little bit of the secret sauce, but um, what would the, like how how would this mental training look like? How would one go about it, or or can you can you reveal any of that? Or so again, what what I would come back to is the because this is part of my livelihood. The I've I've certain in in our discussion so far, we've certainly covered a lot of conceptual. It, there's a lot of utility to be derived from what has been spoken about conceptually in terms of how it's accomplished. I, I selected what I felt was a reasonable amount of time in terms of 30 minutes and what I, the, the this, I'm explaining to you how I do this. So what, what I offer to people is the packages that work in three months, six month and year long contracts of speaking with me every week, one time a week for 30 minutes in which we have a dialogue. Now, mm. the nature of the dialogue such as that you and I have had now has been very conceptual. Yes. And it's possible that a large amount of viewers might be very interested and be thinking, okay, how do I actually do this? What do what the steps look like? How do I? And that's where we fall back into what for me is proprietary. What begins conceptually with the dialogue such as we've had is what any I've, I've had a version of this conversation with trained psychologists mm. and none of them refute what I'm saying because I am not, I am not refuting or rather my, my claims of what's achievable is not opposing, as I said earlier, anything that's already been, it's, it's already accepted much of the research. Yes, yeah. 
It's simply the, in my view, there's been an error in application or an error in interpretation. So how it works begins with the conceptual framework, such as what I suspect has been effective for you even, Rob, listening, you know, we have this dialogue and you're going to come away with this dialogue really thinking about things due to the concepts I shared. And, and as a, as a, let's face it, as a teacher, I am a strong proponent of concepts and I'm a, I'm a strong critic against curriculum mm -hmm. because curriculum is, it's very constraining. It implies one parameter by which we will quantify learning progress. Mm -hmm. And in my view, it's actually just a means of quantifying or rather it's a means of making money off of education. It's monetizing. Mm -hmm. It's monetizing the curriculum is monetizing the learning process. A great, which you'll appreciate because you know how enthusiastic I am about his contributions to knowledge. In this most recent trip to England with Larry, I sat down with David Deutsch. I wanted to ask you about that, yeah. <clears throat> so as a sidebar, what a tremendous conversation that was to have tea with David Deutsch for three hours on his couch in his home. Wow. And, and one of the, what a, our conversation spanned many realms and, and one of the, one of the topics that we discussed that he so brilliantly explained was his, his opinion that no human being should be exposed to school until they're in university. Hmm. They, and I don't know if it's the same. You, you could tell me in Ireland. I know that he said in England, the state cannot interfere with the process of homeschooling. And that's how that's the case in England, where any parent or guardian who chooses to homeschool, it is within their right to do so. And the state cannot interfere with the method of homeschooling. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I would have to check out what it is in Ireland, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it's similar enough here. I'm pretty similar. sure. I'd have to double check that though, so don't quote me. I, I would I would suspect that it is given the close proximity. Yeah. And his his uh, just sort of to paraphrase what he talked about was what I mentioned and what really anyone knows intuitively. So the process of you know one of the one of the essential points that you and I like to discuss is the concept of critical thinking. The, the process of de the mind developing and solving problems mm. is so multifaceted. And the earlier you go in life, the broader the landscape is by which the roots children solve problems and, and to speak most plainly, how people learn. How people learn is much more multifaceted, multifaceted early in life. So let's say we compare 1 million young boys and girls between the ages of five and seven and 1 million men and women between the age 30 and 32. If we were to categorize via whatever mode of rigorous quantification and analysis, what type of learners these humans are, what we'd find is a much more consolidated grouping of modes of learning for the 30 to 32 year olds in comparison mm. to the five to seven year olds. Mm -hmm. And this is, and that's really 
you, you give your opinion. I believe that's completely uncontroversial to state. Anyone who really devotes some thought into it, well, yeah, of course, the developing mind, young children, so many different ways to learn and interpret the world around you. Whereas a full-grown adult in their 30s, yes, there is variability, but not not anywhere near the magnitude of variability. Yes, yeah. So based upon that then, as David referenced, how illogical is it to have the concept of school, given the fact that you cannot possibly address the vast array of modes of learning for young people, a single educator in a single class, it's completely irrational to then, on the one hand, acknowledge there are so many different ways a young person learns to then couple that with now having the, the very notion of a, let's take primary school, of a curriculum for a, a seven-year-old? Are you kidding me? Yeah. A curriculum for a se- It sounds insane only after you have a conversation such as this where everyone accepts the landscape of learning is so vast. The younger you go, and it is a bit sort of, you know, pyramidal in shape where it, it does consolidate as you proceed in biological and chronological maturation, but it always remains varied. Mm. And so on the basis of this, how is it that we even have school? And something that I never really looked into that David shared with me is the whole concept of school in even not even forget about geological, but even in human time scales, it's relatively new. You're not going back much further than, you know, 18th century to where it was really a formal construct. So, yes, we go back to the, the, the school of Aristotle and, and the rest, but, but the mode in which that actually occurred was much different than what any modern human conceptualizes when we think of the word school. Much different, much different. So the modern version of school in which there's curriculum and grades or marks of achievement and very finite needs of learning, this is actually a very new concepts historically speaking and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that many people understand that and on the basis of a, of a conversation like this it becomes I think more and more irrational to to consider the idea of curriculums being presented to young to young people let alone what to, to, to circle back to what you and I are talking about here regarding this reformatting of how to perceive the world around you imagine your emotions mm. heighten your level of psychological pre- preparation for all things, intents, and purposes that could possibly ever happen, it, this, it's necessary to go through conceptually in, or, in order to grasp the possibilities. And then we do get down to the brass tacks in terms of modes of practice, yeah. actionable. That, that is what I do. That, that's what I would prefer not to discuss in the open forum because now we're getting into part of what I do for a living. So mm-hmm. anyone is free to contact me. Yeah, and I'll just say for, for, for the listeners who, who feel like could benefit from a resource like that, I mean, you know where to get James, all the resources will be in, in the show notes. Listen, I only have another few five minutes here, but um, what, just on the back of that with education, with yourself and David, what, what would you see as a solution to the current education that is in place for our youth and 
I suppose another thing too is like, you know, I've had this conversation a lot too about uh, with regards to parenting. It's basically just a blind leading the blind. I mean, listen, we were we're fucked up to a degree by our parent, our parents who were in turn fucked up to a degree by their parents, and it's just sort of vicious cycle. Sure. But I suppose in terms of an educational system and then parenting. Like, is there any sort of thought processes that obviously you do have some thoughts on this? But uh, did yourself and David discuss any more on? Well, we, we we see the flaws and the limitations of the current model, and this is potentially a solution we could offer. I I know a lot of people talk about the the Wald, the Wald, Waldorf schools as a as a potential model to go by, where they're a lot more about, you know, creativity and having kids go making kids more about like problem solvers and, and kind of seeing the world as a more universal sort of holistic aspect and instead of you know telling them what to know make them more critical thinkers I know that's one aspect of the Waldorf education and a lot of it's done through exercise and movement and art and play and it's it yes. seems to be a lot more efficient in development of brain and there's a guy Joseph Shilton Pierce who I don't know if I mentioned you before I always mention him on podcasts but he's had a huge influence on me he's probably like my David Deutz, if you like, and turns out like he's someone I always reference, but he wrote an awful lot on spirituality and, and child development and human behavior, and he would say the same thing, and it's great, it's actually great free lectures of him on YouTube, I'll send them to you if you want to watch, where he shows how detrimental the school and education system is to the development of the human brain, he's like, look, at age eight, like, the reptilian brain is still not fully functional in terms of its foundation to support the limbic system and therefore support a neocortex and frontal lobes. He's like, because the first seven to eight years, a child's just all about exploring environments and touching and feeling things. And it's very sensory motor, motor influence. And it just wants to explore and play. And yet we're there at four years of age, strapping it into a chair. And like that, yes. that just stresses the reptilian brain. Oh, what's going on? And then you're like, two plus two is, and the reptilian brain is, I don't know. That's not my job to know what two plus two is. I just want to explore. Like that's the higher realm of the brain, and the higher realm's like, well, I don't have the foundation yet down there to support this. So, like, kind of like that's that's precisely correct. And what what that points us towards necessarily is acknowledging the lunacy mm. in in so many categorizations of learning disabled children. Yeah. When when from an objective viewpoint, all that is is a different type of learner. Mm. It's in it's it it's criminal. It's criminal. I mean, I, I have personal relationships with people who are successful CEOs of you know seven figure companies who were learning disabled. Yeah. So now let's rethink what they actually were. Not learning disabled, just a different, a non conventional learner that falsely our societal societies have come up with these categorizations of disabled. It's, 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 it's lunacy. And yes, that needs to be thought of. Uh, you mentioned the Waldorf program in the United States. There's a young schooling system called Montessori and the way you describe Waldorf Montessori is very similar. Yeah. Of, of course, there's always going to be pockets of evolution in any context. Fortunately, they exist, but in answering the question, what, what's something that parents could derive utility from it's an interesting question, and I know that we have to wrap this up, so what I'll just conclude with is the actual advent of school in the modern sense evolved effectively along with the Industrial Revolution. So more people are working 
going to work in the conventional sense of some, let's say, for example, daytime hour job that they leave the home to go to work. And that's how you can see the the utility function of the concept of school because the parents are not home. So homeschooling is not an option when the parents are going to work. So now how do you answer the question? And that's where we have to necessarily have the discussion regarding logistics of what is feasible logistically. So clearly in the case of progenitors in general who are not available, there must be an alternative that fosters the open-ended type of stimulation that is suitable for the young person. And fortunately, you know, you mentioned the Waldorf in the U.S. There are examples of this. It's just unfortunate that it does not represent the mainstream. Mm. And so there, therefore, everyone who's part of the mainstream is ultimately suffering for the lack of progress. Like it, it, it really seems to me that it always comes back to economics in terms of the, the monetary system. Yes. You know, like, so... I suppose, like, and I, you know, a, do, a doom and gloom type of guy, like, uh, well, like, I suppose every civilization we've known so far has gone into extinction or hasn't lasted too long. It's actually funny, in the Homo sapiens book, he talks about Homo erectus was around for two million years. He's like, Homo sapiens aren't, like, we're like two, 200,000 years as the cur- current form, and he's like, we won't, we won't make two million. <laughs> two million. So he was just kind of, he was yeah, kinda, that's. He was kind of saying that they were actually a more dominant species than us. Like, so it, I think you, I don't know if you've read that book, but I think you would love it. It's fascinating. Um, but the, uh, the 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 other thing I just want to touch on briefly before, before I wrapped up was this idea again that like yeah, the schooling education system actually is is like it's a novelty. Like you're like the industrial revolutions really when it started to get more sort of standardized across the board. But like I say this all the time. I'm like guys when when I'm talking to a group of people, I'm like religion is a novelty it's around like only a few thousand years organisms have been on this planet for billions of years it's it's a novelty right. still the economic system novelty like it's it's in the terms of the grand in the grand scheme of the universe and how long years are it's like a piece of dust off your nail if you scratch your nail off a rough surface like these things are all novelty i always laugh when people say well traditional medicine versus alternative medicine i'm sorry alternative medicine like like uh, chinese medicine and that's been around for thousands of years and conventional med- right. conventional medicine has been around for mm, two hundred years. It's like, that's but, yet, right. but yet that's called traditional. You know, it just makes me laugh. Like, well, it's it's it, it's an important conversation because what it elucidates is the significance of having, if if not a, a complete understanding, at least an appreciation of universal thinking. Yes. You know, yes. hence you know global sport concepts and the whole construct of my governing dynamics. Is, is the knowledge of assuming the objective viewpoint of actually all that's knowable. I mean, this is what we talked about last time, the difference in, the difference between what is known and what is actually knowable. Yeah, no knowledge is new knowledge. That's right. And so this is, this is, uh, uh, this can only benefit those in whom critical thinking is aligned with their success or their endeavor in life. Listen, James, this was... <sighs> I always say this, yeah, and even now when we wrap up offline, like I always leave these conversations buzzing because it just stimulates you, yeah, very stimulating, and it just it's just higher level stuff, and you know that kind of concept of you know surround yourself with people that you 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 want to you want to be around, basically. So you know you're a reflection of the five people that are most close to you. Know, Jim Rahm saying that Tim Ferriss always quotes, and I guess that's kind of what I feel when when I always have these conversations and dialogues with you, you know. So. 
and that's that's kind of why obviously i emailed you lately saying you know i want to make this more of a regular sort of thing like so definitely have you on again next month and we can pick up where, where we left off here but just again for the listeners maybe just touch on your 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 website your consulting your books and any seminars or have you got anything coming up every everything is consolidated through my website in terms of the books my email and which is globalsportconcepts.net and thank you once again Robbie because it's always an enjoyable conversation yeah. and and hopefully utility is derived from those who listen to it yeah I, I truly enjoyed it so I'll just wrap up and I'll say goodbye to offline so guys not much else to say there an absolute golden hour with uh, Jay Smith uh, honored to call him a friend and a mentor and, and to be able to always you know turn to him for advice on, on many topics and uh I definitely don't take these conversations for granted. Um, you know, cherish the time we get with them. Um, so for you guys listening, just uh, again, I would highly encourage you. It'd be great even just to drop an email to James and thank him for his time here, and uh, definitely consider joining his website with all that. Like you've got over eighty videos up now on that, haven't you? That's right. Yeah, like amazing, That's correct. amazing content. So, um. Be sure to check that out. So for now, guys, just with this podcast, share it around on social media and make sure you subscribe to the podcast and I'll talk to everyone soon. Take care to everyone. Be well and stay strong.